month, that was the most holy month. Uh, we saw that there were seven special Sabbaths throughout the year. Now we see that every seventh year they're also to rest. And so obviously the number seven is very important. But Sabbath means rest. Look at verse 3. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a rest, a period of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. So every seventh year, six years would be ordinary work years. There would be sowing and reaping. There would be planting and harvesting. And there were different crops and different fruits at their different seasons, different times of the year. But an agrarian culture, that's how they would, they would live. But in the seventh year, they were not to do that. They had to, had to rest. And then there's the year of Jubilee. So there was this period of seven weeks of years. So seven times seven, uh, 49 years. So in the 49th year would be a, a Sabbath rest. And then the Lord says, in the 50th year, I want there to be another rest. So there were two years. The 49th and the 50th year was, were both to be years of, of rest, where they were not to plant anything. They were not to go and harvest. So you say, well, how did they survive? Well, they were allowed to go and, and pick grain and pick grapes from the land, wherever they were. Uh, they could go and pick. They weren't allowed to formally harvest, though. So they couldn't say, this is my land. We're harvesting now. We're taking everything that there is. They would have to trust God and allow anyone really to, to come and pick some grapes or take some barley or something like that. Of course, they were allowed to hunt as well, other things. But it's quite something uh, because if you think about it, the 49th year, so the end, the harvest ends, they're not allowed to plant anything, uh, and then they have to go through that whole 49th year, and then the whole 50th year, and then they can only plant in the 51st year, and then wait for that next harvest. So really, you, they're waiting a period of about three years before they, they can uh, harvest food. So it's a tremendous period of rest. You can see that this, this question was asked, verse 20, if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Verse 21, I, the Lord says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So quite something they had to trust that there would be enough provision in the sixth year in that harvest. Remember the story of Joseph. It was seven years of, of great increase and then seven years of famine, and they had to store up in the seven years of, of plenty, and that would be used during the seven years of famine. And so they had to trust that God in the sixth year would provide excess 
so that they could get through the next few years relying on that and also just what? What the ground produced. And I think that brings us to the first problem with, with Sabbath, with rest. And that is trust. Trust. Why don't people rest? Uh, it, it seems, not seems, we know that Israel uh, did not keep this Sabbath rest for nearly 500 years. Uh, we're told in chapter 26 of Leviticus that if they did not give the land its rest, the Lord would send them into exile. So a foreign nation would come in and uh, conquer them and take them out of the land. And the Lord said, so that the land may have its rest. And they went into exile in Babylon for 70 years. It means for 70 Sabbath years they had not obeyed God. So 70 times 7 is 490 years. 490 years they did not trust God. A clear command from God. They did not obey Him. They did not trust Him. And we know that Israel also did not even keep the weekly Sabbath. During the post-exilic period, the prophets have to come and confront Israel, how they continue to work on the, on the Sabbath. Why do people do that? Uh, why do, you know, you'd think, well, if you offered rest, surely we would want to take it. Uh, we hold here that the command to rest one day in seven is a binding command on all humanity, it is a command from Genesis chapter 2. It is based on the creation week. In six days God created everything and then on the seventh day he rested. And he blessed that day. He hallowed that day. He marked it as special. And that was a pattern for, for all humanity because God loves us and is kind to us and gives us rest. And yet... Uh, most people don't rest. Most people in Johannesburg don't rest. Okay. There, let me tell you, there's a difference between being lazy and resting. Okay. So don't think when you're being lazy, you're resting. That's a, that's a different thing. Okay. Very important. I think that's another thing. People haven't learned the art of resting. But resting means trust. I have to trust God. Now, it, God just calls us in a weekly basis to trust him. I'm not going to work on this day. I'm going to trust that God will provide for me financially. That as I honor him in resting, he will provide for me. Israel was called to do this on a, on a, on a far grander scale. So these are not binding. It's not that you, you can every seventh year you can just park off. Uh, unfortunately, we're not, uh, we're not given that. Uh, but they had to trust God for a whole year that God will provide for them. And of course, they didn't do it, at least for the last 500 years before the Babylonian exile. But we're called to trust God. Leland Riken, he says this, if willingness to rest is a sign of commitment to God, it is elsewhere viewed as a freedom from anxiety. So we don't trust God, we're anxious. If I, don't, if I don't work now, if I don't do these things, 
then, then how will I get through the month? How will I make enough money? How will I, I do this or pass my exams or whatever it is? Moses paints a picture of the beloved of the Lord, of someone who rests in safety and rests between God's shoulders, Deuteronomy 33 verse 12. Here is a picture of what rest ultimately involves in the Bible, a relinquishing of human self-assertion and a trust in God. The psalmist enjoins us to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Jesus' discourse against anxiety, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, uses a, uses a barrage of persuasive strategies urging people to cease from anxious striving as they trust in God to supply their needs. Rest is here a form of letting go of human control. And that's scary. Uh, Christianity calls us, really, to not be in control, that we submit to the Lord, that he is the one who is in control. And when it comes to rest, we're acknowledging that, Lord, you are in control. I can say no to all the claims upon my life, people who want their pound of flesh, the work that wants my pound of flesh, I can say no to it and rest in you, trusting that you will provide, trusting that you will care for me and look after me. But it's more than that. Riken says, taken a step further, rest as trust in God's providence becomes symbolic of salvation itself. Isaiah quotes God as reprimanding his people for trusting in their own resources instead of accepting God's invitation. Isaiah 30 says this, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Jesus offers more than emotional rest when he utters the invitation from Matthew 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So maybe it's, it's uh, highly probable that some here are not Christians, that uh, you have never come to Christ for rest. And here we're not talking just about physical rest, it includes that, but more than that, you're striving for some sort of salvation, for some sort of clearing of your conscience. Maybe it's to be a religious person, to be a good person. Uh, you've set your own standards. But let me challenge you, go and check. Even the standards we set for ourselves, we don't keep. Isn't that right? How many times have you said, okay, I'm going to do this this week? My life's a mess. I'm going to start getting up at 5 o'clock every morning. <laughs> Just the standards we make for ourselves, never mind the moral standards that God calls us to, we don't even keep those. And so when Jesus says, come to me all you are laboring are heavy laden, he means those who are laboring, trying to be good enough, trying to be religious enough, trying to really save yourself, trying to cleanse your own conscience from your own sins. You're laboring. You're under a burden of guilt and shame. And so Christ says, come to me. I will give you rest. I will take that. My yoke is easy and my burden is, is light. And so let me challenge you, if you aren't resting as a Christian, it's a barometer that you're not trusting God. 
And the same if you're not a Christian, you will never know rest until you, you come to him. The second component of Sabbath or of rest is refreshment. You see, God is so kind to us. An important part of the meaning of rest is suggested by the mystery of divine rest. Isn't it interesting that God, it says that God rested from his labors in Genesis 2. Um, what, did, what, what did it mean? It's not as though God got tired. God cannot get tired. But it's giving us a picture. It draws a boundary around work and exertion and takes a legitimate delight in celebrating what has been accomplished without an urge to keep working. So God, what has God done? He has put a boundary around work, saying really work will go this far, but no further. And then there will be rest, delighting in what you have accomplished. Now you might have been doing a lot, you might have been busy, I say to my children, because, you know, with school, I say sitting in front of the computer is not the same as work, okay? Pitching up at the office, you know, is not the same as work. You might spend 10 hours in front of the computer screen, but five of them were playing solitaire or something. Okay? You think, don't, don't confuse that with work. Okay? So maybe some of you, are, you, you, you can't rest because there's nothing to take delight in. You haven't done anything constructive. You have been lazy, been doing stuff, but not work. The principle is work and then rest and delight in what you have accomplished. Step back from it. That's what God does. It was very good. Again, if we're not working as unto the Lord, if we're being lazy, doing half jobs, then there's nothing really to delight in. You can't rest properly. You've just got a guilty conscience. And often that's why we, we don't rest when we should rest is because we... We have to catch up because we weren't working properly when we should have been working. Okay. So again, we say to the students, we understand that there are seasons of life and all of those things, but manage your time so that you can rest. Okay. So that you're not cramming. Okay. Exodus thirty-one seventeen says this, that God not only rested on the seventh day, but was also refreshed. Okay. Exodus 23 verse 12 says this, For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien or the stranger may be refreshed. Okay. God is so kind to us. He gives us, commands us, to have a time of refreshment. Okay. Refreshment. Ceasing from our labors. Taking delight in what we have accomplished. And so let me say, rest takes work. It's to be thoughtful. What is it that gives you refreshment? Okay, so you need to think of that yourself. And so look for things that refresh you. Get to know yourself. What is it that... Uh, as a Christian, you find refreshing. Maybe it's going for walks. Maybe it's hikes. Maybe it's uh, a jigsaw puzzle. Whatever it is, those are all good things. But the idea is refreshment. It is a shift from your work, what you normally do. 
It needs to be something different. And I think many people in Johannesburg don't know how to rest. We're workaholics. People, I think it's a problem. People in large cities, they just work hard. What, do you, what does everyone say when they go down to the coast? It's so slow. Nobody. <laughs> Tomorrow's another day. Okay. Maybe there's something we can learn. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I can't speak to that. But um, I, I think a lot of our problem is not that we don't work enough, maybe, but we work too much often. Because so much of one's identity is bound in your achievement and your performance. We don't know how to. Just rest. I'm complete in Christ. I can rest. I don't have to do that today. I can, you can say no to your boss at times. You know that? We're not slaves. There's a different time in history. That's a different, a different system. People who are slaves, that's different. And God says, be the best slave. But here, God has been very kind to us. You know that, that people, uh, I, I, my dad used to work on the mines, and it's, I think it's like a fact that, that most people on the mines in the, will end up divorced. You know, it's like a statistic. Um, because gold. Okay. <laughs> gold. People, are, they work flat out. They will call you at any time of the day or night if the shaft is not working, if something breaks, we need to get that gold out of the ground no matter what. Even if you destroy your family and your children, we need that gold. That's what happens. Corporate world, the same. God's people need to say, I trust God. I'm not talking about being rebellious. And again, there are seasons, we understand emergencies, but an overall principle that I can trust God. God, you will provide for me. Maybe I won't become CEO, but it's okay. I'd rather have my children and family and my health and my nearness to you, Lord, than everything in my life wiped out, but I'm rich and I have a title. So God has given us rest to refresh us. So... Really, take time to learn how to be refreshed. Okay. This is for, for all of us. I'm speaking to myself. Learn what is it. Where do you find refreshment? Of course, and we're called to gather and worship. But there are practical things. Remember, the Lord Jesus would, would draw aside at times. Even the, the Lord Jesus would, would, would draw aside. So Rest. Rest, true rest, ultimate rest is to be found in Christ. And then the land, the second theme. The land belonged to God. That's what he said, it's my land. This is the land of Canaan. But he had apportioned it to the tribes of Israel. You can go and read the book of Joshua. And it gives the divisions there to all the tribes. Apart from the Levites, the Levites were not given land. They were given cities. Um... But they were not given land that was theirs. They had to live off God's people, the kindness and graciousness of God's people. But all the other tribes were given land. And the clans were given 
specific land. Each family was given some land. And so just some, just some interesting things to learn from this principle that was set up here uh, is, is that not, it was not communism. Uh, it wasn't that the state owned the land. It was God owned the land, but then he gave it to, to families. And so there was private property. Each family owned the land, and then it was restored back to that family if they had lost it and had to sell it because of debt. In the year of Jubilee, that land would be restored. Neither was it capitalism, where it's just a free-for-all. Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, verse 8, denounces those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. These laws stopped people from monopolizing. No one could say, my neighbor is poor, I'll buy his land and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and I will own all the land. Even if they did that, in the 50th year, they had to give it back. Now, it doesn't mean that some could become more wealthier than others. Of course, some were better managers of their farm, so uh, there was still that meritocracy. But there was protection against monopolies and oppression of, of people. Now, I don't know. I don't think we'll never get it right until the Lord returns. Uh, there's no such thing. We can't implement a, you know, a Sabbath year because it was a supernatural act. God promised to provide. We can't institute these things. All I'm saying to you is that if you're going to use the Bible for your economic principles, you need to be very careful because the Bible brings both of these aspects together. always find it interesting when people argue for one position from the Scriptures. Because I can give you a whole lot of verses that point the other way, vice versa. So the land had to go back to the family. You see, the land belonged to God and he gave it to every nation and to every family. And that is part of us. We want a piece of land. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, has the character saying, the sweetest thing in in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? Every one of us, and and I know all the students here, what's your plan when you finish your studies? You want to buy a property. That's a good thing. That's the way God has made us. We want something to say, this is my piece of land. This is my little area. The Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the promise of the new heaven and new earth is that every person would have their own piece of land and sit under their own tree. Another author says this, she says, we are all strangers in a strange land longing for home, but not quite knowing what or where home is. We glimpse it sometimes in our dreams as we turn a corner and suddenly there is a strange, sweet familiarity that vanishes almost as soon as it comes. What she's getting at you, it's not just that we want a piece of land and a house, we want a home. You know that difference between a house and a home? I, look, I enjoy looking at architectural websites, and, and uh, they can be beautiful architecture, but sometimes it looks so sterile, like nobody lives there. In fact, it would be ruined if people lived there. <laughs> there would be Lego on the floor, and uh, uh, don't be that person, okay? Okay. Um, 
No, it's, it's, there's a sense, there's a place we, we, we long for to say, this is my home. When I come, I can be myself here, I'm home. It's a place of rest. We live in a fallen and broken world, so we, we never quite experience it fully. That's what she's getting at here. We get glimpses every now and then. And it's that longing within us, that innate sense that there is something more. There is a place where I can be fully at home. I remember as a teenager with my dad watching a movie called The Field. It was about an an Irishman in Ireland and he had this piece of land and then a wealthy um, developer came and wanted to buy it. And he, he was fighting tooth and nail against this. And he, he says at one point, if I remember correctly, he says, without the land, I'm nothing. Okay. And again, people resonate with that, isn't that right? Without the land, I'm nothing. Now, that's not true. Our identity, our identity is not bound up with a piece of soil. If you're in Christ, our identity is in him. And the Bible points us beyond this earth. So it doesn't matter how much land you own here and now, it will never satisfy. Look at Abraham. Abraham's called and the Lord says to him, look, you're gonna, I'm sending you to, to a land. Hebrews 11 verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then at verse 10 says this, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See what the writer of Hebrews says? Abraham wasn't so concerned actually about the land of Canaan or Palestine. That was a shadow, a type. He was looking through that, beyond that, to another city, a heavenly city. A new heaven and a new earth. Jesus himself said the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. The promise is, if you're in Christ, that time will come. When all of God's people will inherit their true home, their ultimate home. The new heaven and new earth. That longing for land will be satisfied perfectly. There will be no more wars or fighting over land. There will be no more jealousy no more hatred. We will be home, properly home. And that's why as Christians, we can never say, this is my home. Remember what we read earlier on, even God says, I'm a pilgrim with you. Abraham lived in tents, symbolizing nomadic life. It's not wrong to have houses and all of those things, but we can never say, this is my ultimate home. We always need to hold it lightly. Say, this is just a shadow pointing me to that final home. And I want to try, and we we should all be trying to make our family homes a little bit of heaven. A place that's safe for our children. A place where they know love. The love of Christ. A place of refuge. A place of safety. A place of beauty. But it's not ultimate. It's just a sign to that final, final home. And then the last theme, freedom. 
Verse 9, then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. So this is that fiftieth year, the year of Jubilee. And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So as you read through this chapter, what the Lord is putting in place for his people is this. There would be times when someone would go into debt. Maybe their harvest fails. Maybe they make a foolish decision. Whatever it is, maybe it's something beyond their control, but they would go into debt. And perhaps they, they, the only way they could repay that debt is to sell their land. And so they would sell their land based on how many years were left until the year of Jubilee. So that would determine the, the value. Or they could sell themselves into slavery, indentured servitude. To say to the person, I owe you money, I will work for you to pay the debt off. Okay. But they were allowed to have a close family member come and redeem them, pay the debt for them. And so uh, that was allowed. But if no one could come and do that, they would have to then go and work for this person. But in the year of Jubilee, everyone would go back to their home and back to the land that was given to them by God. So if they had made mistakes, if they had been foolish, that was not held against them in perpetuity or held against their children, their children's children. The land would be returned to them. And that's what it's saying here. Each person can go back. They are then free, and they can go back to their land. In fact, we have other commands as well, that when, when a person was released from this endangered servitude, the owner also had to give them some money so that they could kickstart going back to their land. Gordon Wenham says this, the main purpose of these laws is to prevent the utter ruin of debtors, those who owe. In biblical times, a man who incurred a debt that he could not repay could be forced to sell off his land or even his personal freedom by becoming a slave. When left unchecked, this process led to great social division, with a class of rich landowners exploiting a mass of landless serfs. And so to be freed from slavery, that's the picture here, freedom. Freedom from the debt that you owed, and freedom from being under the control of another person. The year of Jubilee would, would really uh, set things even again. People could go back to their land, no longer with a burden of debt, to no freedom. And again, that's the longing of every human being, to be properly free. Found this African proverb, it says, it's better to eat a mushroom in freedom than to eat meat in slavery. It's very similar to what the proverbs say, isn't that right? See, there's a longing in every one of us to be truly free. Now, the Bible says there's a worse kind of bondage than physical bondage. And when the Lord Jesus comes, his very first sermon, it's Luke chapter 4, his first sermon, when he starts his ministry, 
He comes to Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Okay? So, you see that? Jesus kept the Sabbath and worshipped. And so, it should be said of each one of us, as was his or her custom, on the Lord's day they gathered for worship. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So at times they would ask someone to, to give a word of exhortation in the synagogue. And they asked Jesus. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a remarkable statement. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of this passage. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is anointed. I am the one who can set the captive free. And most commentators say that this passage from Isaiah 61, and I may, uh, perhaps you saw it, hopefully you saw it, is full of jubilee language. And so when Jesus says this, he's really saying, I am the fulfillment of jubilee. I am the fulfillment of the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee when debts would be canceled, land would be given back, the oppressed would be set free. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. I have come. Now, as you go through the scriptures, you will know that. Well, even you just look around, you know that people still have debt. Probably all of us have debt here. Not everyone has a piece of land. So what's going on? Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment well, as we've been saying all the way along, that will be consummately fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth, where there will be no more debt. We will have a true home. But the bondage that the Bible speaks of that is far worse than physical bondage and physical debt is our sin. We are enslaved to sin. We're in bondage to it. It's, it's the air that we breathe. It's the, it's the environment that we, we swim in. Sin. Does it mean we can't do any good things? No, we do do some good things, but you know our motive is always evil. Remember that Paul says whatever is not of faith is sin. So you can do a good thing. Maybe you did something nice this past week. Helped someone across the road. Gave some, someone some money said someone a nice word to someone, encouraged someone. 
But if it's not of faith, if it's not out of, because of love for Christ, it's sin. And every human being by nature is enslaved to sin and tries to find freedom in all sorts of other things. We all think that, don't we? We think, well, I'll, if I just had that, I would be free. If I just had that, I would be free of this frustrating feeling of inadequacy and frustration. You know, if the world just worked the way I wanted it to work, I would be fine. <laughs> Isn't that what we all think? Like, if it just, people just did what I said, at least I would be happy, okay? <laughs> but the reality is you wouldn't. We... we we, we won't find ultimate satisfaction. And I'm, I'm, I challenge you on this, and I'm challenging my own heart, because we keep thinking, if I just had this, and how many times have you known when you've got that, you're not satisfied? But yet we still fall for it. That's how foolish we are. We keep thinking, well, if it was just this extra thing, this is the missing piece of the jigsaw. If I had that, If only I had this degree, this qualification, this job, it's the company's fault, it's my spouse's fault, it's my children's fault, it's my parents' fault, it's this one's fault, it's the government's fault, it's everyone else's fault. If that... But I promise you, the problem is you <laughs> and me and our hearts. And the only answer is Christ. He's the only one who can set us free from that bondage, that enslavement. And so Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from all captivity. The most important right now is spiritual bondage to sin. And that you, you have no rest. There is no rest for the wicked. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think people who sin have a nice time. The Bible says there's no rest for them. Ever thought of that? Well, notice what Jesus says. The Lord's favor has come. The gospel age has come. Jesus said it's been fulfilled. The inauguration of the kingdom started 2,000 years ago. This is the gospel age. This is the age of the good news. And every longing for rest, for a home, for freedom, will be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And you can begin to experience that right now. And if you are a Christian Keep growing in your understanding and experience of these truths. Be weaned from the rest that the world promises, the lies of, of the world. Be weaned from the lies of freedom that the world offers. Find your, your rest, your salvation, your home, a true home, and freedom from sin in Christ alone. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that all the promises, all the promises in the Old Testament find their amen, their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Not just some of them, but every single one. Lord, thank you that but this salvation is a complete salvation. You save us as human beings with all our longings and desires that you put in our hearts, Lord. 
We are made in your image. You have set eternity in our hearts. Lord, you satisfy all of them. Not only do you forgive us our sins, but you give us rest. You give us a home, a place where we, where we are accepted and known and loved, a place of safety, a place of joy. Lord, you deliver us from the bondage and enslavement of sin and Ultimately, Lord, you will deliver us from every socioeconomic problem, every health problem. Lord, we look forward to that day, a new heaven and a new earth, a perpetual jubilee, an eternal celebration, an eternal rest in you. Lord, if there are any here that don't know you, have never experienced your rest, Please show them there that only you can satisfy those longings and give them repentance and faith, Lord. And for us as your children, we so easily get caught up in the rat race of this world and we don't rest in you anymore. We become frustrated and easily angered and irritable and we start to grumble and complain. Help us to rest in you, Lord, to trust you, to be refreshed in you. In your name we pray, amen.